0: This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Today is Giving Tuesday, a global movement unleashing the power of radical generosity. Join millions of people around the world who are stepping up to give back. Celebrate Giving Tuesday with your contribution today at www.wno.org donate and thank you. Just ahead on today's show, we gear up for the holidays with two popular events in the Crescent City. The Symphony Chorus of New Orleans will make a joyful noise with a performance of Handel's Messiah. And stunning Garden District houses are dressed for the return of the Preservation Resource Center's Holiday Home Tour. But first... According to the latest report from the March of Dimes, a nonprofit that advocates for healthy mothers and children, Louisiana ranks as one of the worst states in the nation for maternal and infant health, especially for black and Native American women. Public health reporter Rosemary Westwood joins us now to dig into the report. Rosemary, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So tell us, what are some of the details in this report? What exactly did the March of Dimes find?
1: So the report analyzes a number of factors from data from 2021, but the key piece of data they analyze is the preterm birth rate. That's an important measure for both maternal and infant health. And it's classified as when a baby is born before 37 weeks of pregnancy. And these are babies that have higher rates of complications, death, and disability. And overall, the March of Dimes report found that the preterm birth rate hit a national 15-year high, and it rose in Louisiana too. Louisiana earned an F for its preterm birth rate, one of nine states, many in the south to do so, and that's the same ranking the state has had for years. The state's preterm birth rate was 13.5%. The national average was 10.5%. And the report also found that Louisiana had one of the highest rates of infant mortality in the country which has also been the case for a number of years, and that the vast majority of parishes here contain sort of an overlapping series of factors that put maternal and infant health at risk. And those include poverty and environmental factors and access to health care. And I should note that previous March of Dimes reports have found that more than half of Louisiana parishes have zero maternal health care. They're what the March of Dimes calls maternity care deserts.
0: Now, what about racial differences? We know that Black women in Louisiana face higher rates of death during and after pregnancy. Was that reflected in the report?
1: Those racial inequities were absolutely reflected in the report. It found that Asian and Hispanic women had the lowest rates of preterm birth in Louisiana, and white women were just only a little bit higher. And those three categories all had rates that were similar to the national average or lower. But when you looked at Native American women, those rates jumped pretty significantly. And for black women, they were even higher.
0: You talked to a few maternal and infant health experts. What did they say?
1: So one of the people I spoke with was Dr. Veronica Gillespie-Bell. She's an OBGYN, and she's the head physician leading the Louisiana Department of Health's efforts to bring down maternal mortality. And she said the pandemic has had a big impact on the health of pregnant people and babies, and so that's reflected in the report. She also said the combination of factors in Louisiana of poverty and lack of access to care, violence and low wages, that all of those are at the root of these stark and poor incomes for maternal and infant health in this And that was a sentiment mimicked by Dr. Maeve Wallace, another expert I spoke to. She's a Tulane professor who studies women and infant health. And she said that Louisiana is, quote, a hostile place for maternal and child health. And both of these experts told me that Louisiana's near total abortion ban is going to make this problem even worse. They pointed to a pretty new and growing area of research that shows abortion restrictions are associated with higher rates of maternal death and complications for mothers and babies, including preterm birth. Wallace's research has found that abortion restrictions are connected to an increase in women dying from pregnancy or just after birth. And a study published in July found that Texas's six-week abortion ban led to a 24% spike in serious pregnancy complications. So Gillespie Bell, who works with the health department, told me that based on this data, she suspects Louisiana will have greater numbers of health complications in pregnant people and infants because of the state's abortion ban.
0: Wow. We'll leave it there. Rosemary, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Rosemary Westwood covers public health for WWNO and WRKF. The Symphony Chorus of New Orleans will ring in the holiday season with Handel's masterpiece, Messiah, accompanied by members of the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra. The Baroque composer's best-known work has become a staple for this community-wide volunteer chorus led by music director Stephen Edwards, who joins us now. Stephen, welcome to Louisiana Considual. Thanks, Diane. This is such an uplifting work. Why was it a groundbreaking performance for Handle when it was first staged back in 1742.
2: 1742. Well, it was uh, part of a what became a series of events that in. English history were actually tied up with the English identifying with the Hebrews as the heroes of the story and actually tied up with the politics of the time. Uh, He had just written Israel and Egypt, which uh, had some references to England's war against Spain and Messiah was also being performed in the context of England being at war with variously France and Spain throughout most of the early 18th century. It was a piece that was premiered in Dublin because of some of Handel's charity connections, but it was premiered in the Easter season because it was originally not considered a Christmas piece. It was considered a piece about the whole story of salvation.
0: So how did
2: this work become so popular then during the Christmas holidays? The connection to the Christmas season, I think, came about more in the last century. It's a work that has never been out of fashion. And at various points, the fashion was to do it like a great big Victorian piece with as many people and as big an orchestra as possible. Um, In the last 50 years, it's increasingly been appreciated as uh, smaller work, although there were some monstrous performances in Handel's lifetime as well. I think its popularity is due to the fact that it's just wonderful. It's a great piece.
0: So tell us more about the story of Handel's Messiah. And, you know, where does the text come from? And what was actually going on in his life at the time of the debut?
2: The text of Messiah was put together by a man named Charles Jennings. Uh, Jennings was a minister, a priest. And at the head of the score, there is a note to the preface of the word book, and it begins with the words "maiora canamus," which is from Virgil, it means "let us sing the greater themes." Interesting that he starts out with a classical reference rather than a biblical. And then he quotes, says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So that's what the piece is about, the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified by the spirit, seen of angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it obviously isn't only about Christmas. It's about the whole mystery of salvation, sort of the greatest story ever told. And in the context of English history, the Church of England and England were at war with the French and Spanish Catholic countries. And so this was at very least an expression of national pride in the English and the Protestant English Church. But it also, in terms of Handel's personal life and Charles Jennings, there was, a, um, well, let me go back. The, the, the contrast between Anglicanism, English Protestantism, and Lutheranism, or Methodism, or even Catholicism, were, was not all that was going on. Because, of course, the challenges between these various churches was a political one. Depending on what religion you were in, these were potential traitors or enemies. But within most of these countries, this is also the era of the Enlightenment. And there was a huge difference of opinion between the deists, the rationalists, and the more orthodox people and charles Jennings was very active as a person who believed that the orthodox view that god was not somebody who put a timepiece in place and then let the universe go but that god intervened in human history through all of these miracles and that's what he set in israel and egypt and that's what he set here in all of these things that he chose from scripture from throughout the bible But they tend to be from the Old Testament showing that the New Testament is to him the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So this idea that God was not just a clockmaker and distant, but that he intervened in human events is something that Jennings certainly believed and uh, Handel seemed to have been attracted to as well. And the other issue with all of these oratorios and even some of the operas was Handel and his librettists choosing uh, stories that promoted religious tolerance. Not surprising given that, you know, Handel himself had converted from being a Lutheran and the new Hanoverian kings were German Lutherans, Protestants, but they also had to take an oath of allegiance, to become the king. So all of these issues of what you could do depending on what religion you were were all tied up in all of these works. A lot going on. And you don't need to think about any of that to listen to this work and be swept up in the story and the drama and the emotion and just the sheer beauty.
0: Now, the Hallelujah Chorus brings audience members to their feet and is arguably the most widely known section from this work. Why is that, and are you supposed to stand?
2: Well, you don't have to stand up. The the story about that is simply that the king thought it was over and it was time to go and if the king stands everybody stands (laughs) um the hallelujah chorus has to be considered in the context of the scene that it's part of because these messiahs aren't just numbers they are organized into dramatic scenes and the hallelujah chorus follows a recitative and aria by the tenor the tenor says he that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn the lord shall have them in derision and then there's an aria that sings thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And it's in response to that that the chorus sings hallelujah. But out of those hallelujahs, the entire orchestra and chorus then say in unison, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. So there's a unison statement which depicts unity and the one God And then again, he repeats that in all of the voices of the chorus. It gets higher and higher and higher until the statement for the Lord God Omnipotent reigneth is kind of reigning up on top of all those hallelujahs. And then there's a complete switch of scene. He says, the kingdom of this world, and he takes out everything. It's very low in the voices. He takes out everything but the strings. The kingdom of this world, low and soft, is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And when we say has become the kingdom of our Lord, all of a sudden the oboes and the trumpets and the drums and everything, it's a great coup de théâtre (laughs) as we have this beautiful painting of heaven and then again we get and he shall reign forever and ever and he sets it as a canon throughout all the voices so this idea of a canon which is something that can repeat over and over forever and ever and that statement and he shall reign forever and ever cycles through all the voices until it finally is concluded with the homophonic statement of hallelujah and he also you know in we all know that when you want to emphasize something you say it three times right okay and that's what people normally do rhetorically. In Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, everything is said four times. So it's one over the top. <laughs> now tell us a little about the soloists. Who are they? We have four wonderful soloists. Our soprano is Sakina Davis, who is the professor of voice and opera at Xavier University. She is actually returning. She was our soloist last year as well. Our Mezzo-soprano is Monika Coson. She, along with our bass, Patrick Jacobs, I first met when they were students, and I was a teacher at Loyola University back in the early 1990s. And they are both active over in the Mobile Biloxi Pensacola world, so they'll be coming over. Our tenor is new to our performances of Messiah. It's Tyrone Chambers II. I know Tyrone from Opera Creole. He is a performer who, for the last several years, has been working mostly in Germany. So I am delighted that he is able to come back and will be in New Orleans to sing this in his hometown. And I, I, for soloists, I should also mention Vance Wolf, who is the trumpeter for The Trumpet Shall Sound. Because for me, the high point of the whole thing is hearing Vance play that so beautifully every year. If you've never heard Messiah, come find out what all the excitement is about. <laughs>
0: Symphony Chorus of New Orleans, music director Stephen Edwards, happy holidays. Thank you to you too, Diane. Symphony Chorus of New Orleans performs Handel's Messiah on Sunday, December 11th at 2 p.m. at St. Mary's Assumption Church, 923 Josephine Street in New Orleans. More info is online at Mm symphonychorus.org. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. The Preservation Resource Center's 47th Annual Holiday Home Tour, presented by McHenry Residential, returns this year to its pre-pandemic format. Stunning private residences in the New Orleans Garden District are dressed up for the holidays and open to the public. PRC Director of Communications, Susan Langenhennig, is here with details. Susan, welcome to Louisiana Considered. Thanks, Diane. I'm so happy to be here. This is a -a once-a-year treat in the Garden District, And this year, you are finally able to return to your pre pandemic format. What does that mean for visitors?
3: Oh my gosh, we are so excited to come back to the format that everybody loves, which means that the houses will be open both the interiors and the grounds. Last year during COVID, we couldn't open the interiors because of the Omicron variant. This year, we are back. The houses are fully open, they are magnificent beautiful private homes. It's a rare treat to be able to be able to see inside them. They will be all decorated for the holiday. People will love it.
0: Now tell us about the architectural styles of the homes that are featured this year. How many homes and what will be the experience?
3: So There are six private homes, all of which are at least 100 years old. Some of them are much older. Some of them are 150 years old. And they range in styles from Greek Revival the side hull shotguns, all of the classical architectural styles that you see in New Orleans. What's really magnificent about them is that we really chronicle and celebrate the history, the full history of these houses, who built them, who lived in them from all walks of life. All of that history is up on our website at prcno.org. The tour includes the six private homes as well as the main building on the Louise S. McGee School campus, which was designed by noted architect James Ferret, and is a real treat. Most people don't get to see inside that building unless they, you know, go to the school or have a family member who does. So that's also a real treat to see.
0: So we have six homes and one bonus building. Can you take us on a little mini tour?
3: Sure. One of the houses this year was built circa 1898. And it's a really interesting house because it was originally built as the carriage house of another property in the Garden District. And in its history, it was picked up and shifted on the property and became its own house in its own right. So that's kind of an unusual house. It has a spectacular renovation on the inside that was done. And people saw the gardens of it last year. And so to be able to see inside and see the artwork will be really extraordinary. We also have this amazing 117-year-old home on First Street that was originally part of the Lividay Plantation track of land, and then the house itself was built about circa 1905, 1906, and it has extraordinary artwork on the inside that people will really get a delight in seeing, including pieces by George Dunbar, Hunt Sloanham, Amanda Talley, and just really extraordinary beautiful art collection we have another house circa 1835 and has gone through an extensive renovation and beautiful showcase of the house people will really see how some of these homeowners have taken these houses that over their years some of them had been turned into apartments at different times in their histories and then were turned back into single-family homes and really renovated to be livable from modern families, which is kind of fun to think about in our historic buildings.
0: Yeah. Now, how did the tours come about, and how do they further the goals of the Preservation Resource Center?
3: The very first tour was 47 years ago, and our organization, the Preservation Resource Center, is 48 years old. It started with just a small collection of homeowners on First Street who opened their homes for a small tour to benefit the PRC, Our mission is to protect and preserve our historic architecture, neighborhoods, and cultural identity of our city. And we do that through a variety of programs. We offer free classes for homeowners and for prospective homeowners to learn about buying a historic building. We're talking about humble shotguns as well as all sorts of historic buildings and architecture that we have in our city. We offer free home repairs through our revival grants program to homeowners who are in need, low-income and elderly homeowners who are in need. That's a really special program that we're really proud to do. We offer advocacy to help neighborhoods achieve the goals that they believe in. For instance, we worked with the Train Park neighborhood to help that neighborhood get listed on the National Register of Historic Places and recognized for its extraordinary history. All of the money we raised from the Holiday Home Tour goes right back into this program. So it's a true community event.
0: Now, for the second year, you are bringing back the Holiday Book Fest. What can we look forward to there?
3: So the PRC is a publisher, and we publish books about the history and architecture of the city. And we also celebrate other authors and publishers who do the same. And so last year we started this, and we had such a great turnout, we decided to do it again. We've invited local authors who have new books out, Ryan Fertel, Doug McCash, CW, Cannon, Ruth Laney, David Ray Morris, Liz Williams, Matt Haynes, Molly Kimball, some of the authors who will be coming out. They'll be giving short talks about their books and then signing copies of their books. And the fun thing is the book fest is open to anyone. It's free, does not require a ticket. Anyone can come in and listen to these authors, get to know them, get them to say hello and sign a book.
0: Now, there has been a holiday home tour boutique in past years. Is that also open this year?
3: It is. We are so excited. We were unable to hold the boutique during COVID, and so we're thrilled to bring it back by popular demand, I should say, because (laughs) everyone has asked us to bring it back. And this boutique is fabulous. We have invited tons of local artists and craftspeople to present their best gift items, arts crafts, New Orleans Proud items, you will be able to check off your complete gift list.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what is your hope for Revelers this year?
3: Well, you know, this is a special year. We all feel that this year is like bringing back the old traditions that we've missed. And we're so excited to see everybody, to reconnect, to really feel like the holidays are back, and we're just really hoping everyone will be there to celebrate with us the special part of New Orleans that we love.
0: PRC Director of Communications, Susan Langen Hennig, thanks so much. Thank you. The Preservation Resource Center hosts the 47th Annual Holiday Home Tour presented by McHenry Residential on December 10th and 11th from 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. The event is headquartered at the Rink Shopping Center, 2727 Britannia Street. More information is online at prcno.org. WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. This has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guests, WWNO and WRKF public health reporter, Rosemary Westwood. Symphony Chorus of New Orleans, music director, Stephen Edwards. And Preservation Resource Center, director of communications, Susan Langenhennig. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.